and welcome to this month's episode of the Distance Learning Roundtable. It's a new show on the Incandescent Radio Network. I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show, where experts gather to discuss the future of online education. It's an honor to introduce you to the host of the show, Pat Casella. He is the executive director of the U.S. Distance Learning Association. And Dean Hoke, he is the managing partner of the international organization Edu Alliance. Joining us today is Dr. Jenny Saunders. She's VP of Faculty Experience and Academic Services at Western Governors University, which is based in Salt Lake City, Utah. So Dean, I'm gonna kick it over to you to tell us about this truly amazing educator and to start our conversation off. That sounds great. Well, thank you, Hope. Jenny applies a scientist's mind, which is an unusual thing to say when you're talking about distance learning, but we're gonna get into that a little bit. But she also has an educator's heart to reimagine the role of the faculty in centered learning at a scale. She's first generation family college graduate. She's enthusiastically committed to creating transformative education experiences accessible to every learner. And in her role, she leads initiatives that combine the tools of digital transformation with the skills of human transformation to improve student experience and outcomes. She holds a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell and has over 15 years in experience in higher education, serving in leadership, innovation, and instructional roles. She lives in Utah, enjoys hiking, paddling, skiing, and otherwise the mountains, I think, along with her husband, three sons, and a growing puppy. That's quite a family you have there. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you so much. And uh, it, it is, it's a, it's a busy bunch for sure. And we have a great, great time together. Pat, why don't you go ahead? All right. Hey, Jenny, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to start off with the first question. Let's talk a little bit about Western Governor University. Um, I believe it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest online university in the United States. I understand it's one of the largest as well. Tell us a little bit about WGU and maybe a little bit on the profile of the institution and, and the students. Uh, you know, trying to get to is how are they different than the students who attend that traditional university? Yeah, happy to. So, um, so WGU, we're um, as you said, we're online, we're competency-based nonprofit university. We started in 1997, back when the internet was just getting started, um, by 19 U.S. governors who were looking for a way to kind of use this new emerging technology to expand access to quality higher education. Uh, so that's how that's how we started. And this year was actually our 25th anniversary. So we're, we're 25 years old. We joke sometimes that that means our prefrontal cortex is now fully developed, right? We're ready. And uh, we're, we were also the first, at least in the United States, it's the, we were the nation's first accredited competency-based university. And for those who might not be as familiar with competency-based, it means that we hold the learning constant and the time varies for the learner. So they're not spending time working on things that they already know. And, um, and they do have the time to spend in order to meet the level of competency for the things that they're less familiar with or that might be more challenging for them. So it's it, it just kind of in its um, inherent nature, competency-based education tends to be more personalized. So that's who we've been um, from the very beginning. And you're right, we're one of the largest universities. We currently have about 140,000 students currently enrolled. And uh, last week, we actually celebrated our 300,000th graduate and um, so when we think about, you know, kind of 
doing quality education at scale, that's the kind of scale we're talking about <laughs> now at WGO. And, um, and when I think about that, I, I think it reflects two things. One, the dedication and drive of our students. So when I think about the profile of our learners, you know, these are folks who are willing to use any spare minute to try to further their education and, and create opportunities for themselves and for their families. And the vast majority of them, I mean, these are, these are adults and um, they are, are most of the time working full time, have family responsibilities. Um, more than 70% of them actually are cl uh, classified as underserved based on a few different categories. So race or ethnicity, low income, rural resident, or if they're a first generation, uh, first generation college student like me. Um, and uh, most of them come to us with some college, but no degree. So very often they've tried this before, right? They've tried higher ed and it didn't work for them for whatever reason or life got in the way as often happens. And um, our traditional college experience doesn't tend to serve this population very well, but they're exactly who we were designing around uh, since the inception of WGU. The average age <laughs> is 35, but that spans from teenagers to octogenarians. And so if you look at like the, the largest group of students that we have, they're in their late 20s, early 30s, kind of that really busy age of life, right? Where they're, they're working, they often have, you know, children, they're taking care of all their parents and things like that. Um, and our fastest growing group is actually the under 25 category. And hmm. so when you talk about how they differ, how our students differ from traditional uh, university students, I would say in the past, you know, much older, um, you know, again, working, have families, et cetera. But I think what we're seeing is that uh, more and more of the students who are coming to us kind of reflect the new normal in higher education, that many students, even though they may be much younger than before, are working and often multiple jobs. They are, you know, they have family care responsibilities, whether that's elders or children. Um, and they, they often have quite a bit of financial strain that they're dealing with as well. So that's our, that's our largest, or, or I should say our fastest growing group. So even though we, we still are very much focused on um, those adult learners with some college, no degree, uh, we're seeing uh, that growing group come in as well. You know, Jenny, my years of working in, in universities across the country and overseas, the one common problem I see, whether it's online students or face-to-face -face, is retention. Um, and academic performance, it's one of the most challenging issues that I think we all have. And I think even more so maybe for online schools. I mean, I've read reports that the retention rates are 20% lower on online courses than they are in quote unquote traditional type of schools. However, it seems like you and your colleagues have really been taking this on straight on and seem to be doing some interesting things. Can you talk about that a little bit? How are you addressing those issues? Yeah, happy to. And as you noted, you know, retention and student performance, they're they're like the perennial concern, right? <laughs> Focus in yeah. higher ed. And you're right that it's it's an unfortunate reality that um the students whom we often most seek to serve are those who are least likely to ask for help. And when you think about that in an online learning context, uh the nature of that environment makes it pretty easy for a learner to struggle in silence or to just disappear. Right. And, um, and so we have really fantastic student centered faculty at WGU and they were mentioning again and again, like, oh, I wish I knew sooner. Right. When a student was struggling, how do I know when they need me today? And so in 2017, we actually gathered a group of those faculty together 
And um, we did some design thinking around the question of how could you know who needs you today? What would you need to know? And we used their insights and worked with them and partnered with our ed tech folks to, um, to design a tool that we called the Learner Care Dashboard. And it's, um, it's built in Salesforce for us. And it's, a, it's, kind of, it's a notification system that's based on the behaviors of students within the system and services these notifications for timely outreach. So like, you know, this is a student who needs you today kind of a thing. And that can be based on maybe a lack of academic activity or perhaps they attempted an assessment unsuccessfully. And those can be really tender moments for learners, um, especially if this is something that, you know, they're trying again for a second or a third time. And, um, and so with those notifications, faculty would reach out to the learners so they didn't have to ask for the help. We were just there at the moments that we knew would be pretty impactful. And, um, and so we, we uh, built that tool, we tested it, we piloted it, we did a couple of different pilots. We actually found that we needed to adjust some of our own policies. That It's interesting when you have a focus like this that, that you realize, oh, we, we have red tape we didn't even know we had <laughs> some of these things for personalization. So we, we made some adjustments and then we rolled it out to all of our course and program faculty in July of 2019. And it was a, a really helpful tool during the pandemic when knowing who the students who really needed us were became even more, you know, um, acute, I should say. And um, and then we were able, after a couple of years of use, you know, and amassing quite a bit of data, uh, we did some research to see, well, did it work? And I mean, we could see aggregate information, but as I'm sure you all know, you know, aggregates, you lose a lot of the detailed information about, but are we serving the students we really want to serve? Not that we don't want all of our learners to be successful, we do, but we know that many of them have a lot fewer barriers, a lot less friction for their success, right? So um, so we did that study, and um, this is what I presented at Educause last month, um, is that we found that for learners who um, predominantly experienced that timely faculty outreach based on that you know, learner care dashboard notifications, um, that um, comparing them to those who, who didn't receive that outreach, uh, at least not most of the time, that their course completion rates were 20% higher than that control group. And when we looked at retention, retention was 16% higher overall. Okay, so that's that was really great news when we saw it, but then we were like, okay, but again, are we really serving the populations that, you know, that have the most friction? And so we looked at it in a couple of different ways. One was looking at um, an indicator that we have that's called uh, a momentum indicator. And, you know, a scientist, right? Momentum, friction, we use all the, uh, all the analogies. <laughs> that it tells us kind of what is a learner's momentum, knowing that the slower that they're going, the more likely they are to stop, right? And to drop. And, um, and we saw that the impact on course completion rate and retention was disproportionately positive for the students who were low or medium low momentum. So we, were, we really were improving things for the students who were um, the most likely um, to not have that success. And then when we looked at it by a student identified race and ethnicity, what we found was that for our, um, so again, like overall it was about 19, 19, 20%, you know, in aggregate for our Hispanic students, it was over 22% um, course completion rate uh, improvement. And for our um, uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander, it was 26%. And for our Black and African-American students, it was 29% um, improvement in course completion rate. So this was really encouraging for us. We do have a mission for access and specifically around equity. And uh, so we were, you know, 
I was very proud of our faculty because they're the ones who did the work. <laughs> they're the ones who are reaching out for these learners at a time that they needed them and they didn't have to ask for it. The, the help was just there. And, um, and so this kind of event-based event or you know, more just-in-time type of support has, has really taken hold at WGO. Outstanding. That is outstanding. Jenny, we've been, you, we just started to talk a little bit about the instructors and um, my understanding you have over 4,000 faculty there, right? Um, wow. Can you tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about how you work with this faculty to be effective? You know, how, do, how can they become better at working with these students, especially with some of the, uh, what we were just talking about? Yeah. So, I think I might just preface this with a little bit of background on our faculty model. So we do have about 4,000 faculty members at WGU, but we have what I like to call a, a specialized faculty model where they specialize in different parts of the learner experience. So um, about 1,100 of those faculty are evaluators. So these are subject matter experts, often terminally prepared, that are evaluating student work and providing feedback, but they're not necessarily you know, talking to the students, for example, but they're they're highly trained and calibrated in the work that they do. It's, it's pretty impressive. Um, and then we have our program and our course faculty. So the, the program faculty are with students kind of throughout their journey. Um, again, they have advanced degrees and experience in the career area of that program. So they're able to make those connections for learners between their academic pursuits and really, you know, their career goals as well. And then when people think about instructors or teaching in higher ed, our course instructors are kind of more of what people would think about, right? They're working with students in courses, subject matter experts, um, and I would say also excellent teachers. And, um, and so they're working with them. They don't grade the work, but they're really focused on helping those learners build their competencies so they can then demonstrate it on the assessments. So just a little bit of background. <laughs> so the folks that I work with the most are the program and the um, course faculty. And when they are hired, and a new faculty member, they go through quite a lot of training, actually, before we ever have them work with students. It's um, somewhere between four and six weeks. And, um, and they, they learn a lot about WGU, kind of get acculturated to who we are, what we believe, our model. And um, they learn a lot about andragogy, um, social emotional learning, you know, active listening, things like that, in addition to like the tools and sort of like the, you know, the, the processes of the job. And they start in their first week observing other faculty with learners, um, whether it's through recordings or live observations and kind of reflecting with those folks. And then they'll do role plays and then they'll start doing their own interactions with learners with an, an observer coach that um, they then can kind of debrief with afterwards. Uh, like so many things with learning, especially if it's behavioral learning, practice is the way to do it, right? And for many of these folks, they have, ex they have a lot of experience teaching most of the time but not necessarily in quite the same environment where you're working with learners who, um, because it's competency-based, they're not cohorted, right? So you're not like moving a group of students all through content at the same time. They could have a call with a learner who's just starting a course, who's in the middle of the course, who's, you know, you know, not passed an assessment for the third time, all in the same day, right? So there's an agility to that that is, I think, actually pretty exhilarating, um, but also a different experience. So we want to make sure that they're ready for that as they're doing it. Um, and then there's ongoing faculty development that we do uh, for, for them whenever there are updates or tools um, and actually like social emotional learning and resilience skills in particular have been a major effort over the last couple of years as well, ensuring that our folks have the skills themselves to, um, to build that resilience during difficult times. There's no shortage of those over the last few years. And, um, and then also to encourage those in their learners. So 
um, that's kind of just some of the highlights of what we do. Sounds like a well-oiled machine. Well, let's talk about something that wasn't so well-oiled and um, caused probably your school, along with just about every other academic institution in the world, a real challenge, and that was the pandemic. There were very few schools in reality that were prepared to take this event on, and most of them struggled at the very least for weeks, maybe months, in some cases, even longer than that. But you folks are a bit unique. It isn't that you didn't have challenges and everything else, but you had an emergency disaster plan, if I remember right, in place. Now, it wasn't exactly for the pandemic, but I'm very curious about this. And I think you put this into place maybe two years before the pandemic hit. Can you talk about why you did that and how did it help you? Were there lessons learned? Did it help you through the pandemic? Yeah, so we we call this our environmental barriers program, and I just I have to acknowledge Michelle Jungbauer, my colleague at WGU, who really was the heart and soul and, and leads this program today. Um, it started in 2017, actually, after Hurricane Harvey, as a way to just sort of you know how do we quickly identify our learners and employees for that matter? We actually have an analogous one for employees that our people and talent organization runs, patterned off the one that we built for students. So. Um, that, uh, that when something happens, when a disaster strikes, that we can quickly identify those learners, reach out to them and assess the impact that that's had on them. Um, and then go about offering whatever services, um, accommodations, et cetera, that we can for them so that they can you know, recover and, and hopefully also continue with their studies, uh, knowing that for so many of them, this is the key, right, to a better life for them. And we wanna help them continue through as best as possible. So um, so that was, yeah, started in, in 2019. And again, designed to be very location-based, um, based on what was happening, right? And so they, we've deployed it, you know, in response to hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, unfortunately, school shootings, um, all kinds of things. And, um, and been able to provide support that whether it's, you know, mental health support or um, a replacement laptop for a learner if they lost it, things of that nature. And, you know, some academic flexibility, of course, too. When the pandemic hit, this was no longer a localized disaster. Right? This is like nationwide, <laughs> everywhere. And, um, and so, what, but we did have this system in place. And so we did use it. We, we changed it a little bit because it was no longer going to be based on specific zip codes. But it did have a documentation process for us. For, um, for faculty and others, anyone in our, what we call our community of care, anyone who's, you know, kind of interacting with learners directly um, to document what the students were going through. And we decided um, because we didn't have zip codes and things as, as like a way to really localize it, we started using hashtags for um, particular scenarios so that we could then use that data to kind of give us like a larger view of what people are experiencing where and then problem solve around that. And, um, and it also allowed us to sort of see when things were ebbing and flowing over time. And um, I would say in particular in our teachers college and college of health, um, we could see not only the impact on our learners, but we could start to, to learn more about the impact on our faculty and the other staff who were working with them. As you can imagine, students who are working in a COVID ward, um, it's a really difficult situation. And often their mentors were um, a lot of support for them that could also have its own drain on the mentors. So we ensured that we were providing um, mental health support and, and other types of um, uh, opportunities for folks to really care for themselves, take a break. Um, and uh, you know, we provided care cards and 
packages and things like that to, um, to teachers and to nurses, um, uh, the students in particular in areas that we had a high concentration. Um, and then of course there was like the federal funding um, with the HERF funding that we could dispense directly to our learners and, um, and better understand what their particular needs were. Cause a lot of times, you know, they'd be going through financial hardship, but you can't really see that from their FAFSA. Cause that was months or years, you know, sometimes before. And um, so the hashtags allowed us to really localize that more quickly and um, be able to disperse funds based on the things that we knew about our learners. Well, I'm that fascinated by the, the whole <laughs> thing about the hashtag. That's just amazing that you came right. up with that, that idea. Yeah, that is a great idea. So um, things have changed and technology has changed and your use of technology has certainly changed. Tell us a little bit about how distance learning technology has evolved since you offered your first online courses, you know, back in 97. Um, you know, how is technology being used today? What is the different technologies that are being used today that weren't available back then? And, you know, a little bit maybe how your students have, um, you know, warmed up to it or adopted to it. Great question. Uh, I mean, what's so funny is... Thinking back to like even 2000, right? Internet is still relatively new. And so learners would sign up for WGU and they would, you know, email and do things like that. But if a lot of our assessments still had to be mailed, we were like a traditional <laughs> distance learning place for a little while, right? Um, and then, of course, the, the ability to offer learning resources in a more reliable way um, that came along. Uh, obviously, video conferencing, um, VoIP was a big thing, right? Back in the 20 aughts. Um, and, uh, and so each, each step, we, we adopted some of those things and used them to help our learners. And, um, and I think there's, you know, along the way, we have some really flexible folks here. So they generally are here because they love the students and they're, you know, really committed to the mission, but also because they like being agile. They like being able to adapt to the needs of learners and, and learn quickly. So, um, you know, for the most part, they, they adapt to the new technologies pretty quickly. Um, these days, you know, one thing that was a little surprising is, um, and I, I sort of wonder how much the pandemic primed us for this. So while we were doing, you know, sort of webinar type of live events and breaking people into breakout groups and doing, you know, doing like active learning online, we've been doing that for, you know, a decade at least. Something new that's been happening this year, and we see it especially in our teachers college, um, but it's starting to emerge elsewhere, are these study halls in like a, like a WebEx platform where people have little breakout rooms and they're not even really talking very much. They're just studying together, but they know there's another person there and it helps them feel a little more accountable, right? It's like a study group, but you don't always know exactly who's going to show up and they love it. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable to me. Like it's not, there's often a faculty member present in case they have questions or they have, you know, yeah, it needs some direction to resources or something like that. But um, but it's not really faculty led at all. It's just peers showing up, sometimes talking to each other, you know, I aming a little bit here and there, but mostly quiet studying on camera. So that was a new one for me. And I was like, I wonder how many of the sort of pandemic happy hours with friends <laughs> prepared us for something like that, that they're much more interested in it. Um, so that's sort of a, you know, a different way that we're using existing technologies. Another thing that we're doing quite a lot in our licensure program, so that's teacher licensure or nursing licensure, are um, using um, virtual reality or augmented reality for them to practice 
some of these, again, behavior-based skills. Before one of our teacher candidates goes into the classroom, they actually are using immersion, which is you know one, one option for um, this type of augmented reality to practice setting up an IEP for a student, you know, with their parents, for example, um, or, you know, having difficult conversations, things like that. So, um, and in nursing, there's a lot of simulation that takes place that's um, computer assisted. So those are things that we, we embrace as they come and, and we're checking out other things to see as, as it matures, if it's ready for scale and, um, and, and where we can fit it in to benefit, benefit our, our student. Excellent. Very good. Jenny, this I think will be our last question, but I want to go into a little bit of your own academic background. I mean, you're not exactly from the distance learning world, and et cetera. I'm a matter of fact, you're a classically trained scientist. I mean, your your PhD out of biochem, molecular biology out of Cornell, but after a certain point in time, you seem to move into the whole education section, rather than being, quote, unquote, a traditional face-to-face -face professor or researcher, you moved into a very different world. I'm curious what you brought from the world of science to distance learning, and what have you been able to apply, and what have they, in turn, kind of helped you with as you transitioned into this world? That's a great question. Um, you know, as a scientist, I think... Uh, I bring with me that really that sense of discovery, the love of a good experiment <laughs> and data, right? Yeah. To try new things and think differently, understand what's out there and, and what could we do differently? Um, so that, that definitely has served me. And I'll say specifically biochemistry, because you're thinking about living systems. I really am, um, uh, I, I bring that systems thinking to this work knowing that there are so many layers, so many connections. When you tweak one thing here, it will have an impact in other places, some of which we can predict and some of which we learn later, right? And, um, and having an appreciation for that as we're designing systems and processes, policies, et cetera, is uh, I think really helpful and, um, and, and quite gratifying as well. Uh, and I'd say what I've gotten in return, I... Um, you know, in school, I, I would develop a, a, a great, well, I say great, I would develop a hypothesis and design experiments. And that was really fun. I loved seeing the data right when it came through. But I will say that as soon as I started teaching, there is just nothing like the impact of helping another human develop themselves. And that has brought, I think, incredible meaning into the work that I do. There's just, I know a lot of teachers talk about, you know, that light bulb moment. And I would say, yes, light bulb moment when it comes to content, sure, of a concept, that is that is fulfilling. Even more so, and something that I heard, especially when I came to WGU and the population that we work with, was a light bulb going off about their own ability, that they could break through a preconceived notion about what they were good at or not good at and, um, and see something different for themselves. And that's been absolutely priceless. I, I think everyone, you know, I talk to scientific friends, they want to have an impact and it's usually in a particular way um, through patents and things like that. Um, and, uh, and I'm grateful I get to have an impact and experience that impact firsthand in a way that just makes it all the more enjoyable and motivating. Excellent. Well said. Thank you so much, Jenny. That You're just an amazing thinker and doer and we're so appreciative <laughs> to have you on, on the show today. 
Dean and Pat, thank you both for those wonderful questions. Another fascinating conversation. And we look forward to keeping in touch with Jenny and seeing how this all evolves and what might be coming down the road for your school and just your perspective on this distance learning opportunity. So thank you to our listeners and our viewers. Tune in for next month's episode, where we'll be shining a spotlight on Lee Gamble, content writer and general wackiness consultant for the National Association of Health Education Center's Grossology Live. It's a video conference project that you are not going to want to miss it. And we are so thrilled to have you all here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Have a wonderful holiday, everybody. We will see you next year. Bye.